Richard Minsky. Maybe we can have a serious chat about your mission in life, your passion, what you're doing with books. I'm making books that are works of art and proselytizing book art. Can you define book art for us? Book art is a work of art that is in the form of a book or that takes the concept of a book and creates a work that epitomizes some aspect of what a book is as a cultural object and uh, brings the metaphor clearly to a visual presentation. What metaphor? The metaphor that the artist sees the book as representing, and it might be about the communication of knowledge, it might be about the preservation of information, it might be about a particular format that books have taken through history or the evolution of that format. There are, there are many metaphors surrounding the book as a cultural object that an artist might latch onto and want to uh, spin. Okay. You see, the reason that I love what you're doing is because the subject of your book art or your book artistry is art that you find in books. In other words, things like dust jackets or the actual designs on covers of books. One of the things I've done is focus on book covers and uh, both their designs and the method of production. Uh, I do books that use methodologies that were practiced in medieval times and I've done books in scroll formats that goes back thousands of years and I've done books in a number of experimental formats. So part of it is about the structure of a book. I've done a series of some seven books on American publishers bindings that covers both the evolution of artwork from the 1870s to 1930s, which is the transition from Victorian design to modernism uh, that incorporates many art movements from arts and crafts and surrealism and poster style and abstract landscapes, many of which forms appeared on book covers before they appeared on paintings. So the question arises, were visual artists influenced by book covers that they saw in their house as children? And, or, did these artists have these notions of what to do as a visual presentation that would have gotten them thrown out of the salon, but that it was okay to put on the cover of a children's book? So we see abstract expressionism and constructivism and futurism in 1880 on book covers, which is quite a, a, an advance of when you saw them uh, being shown in galleries as art. Well, the thing that fascinates me is that you incorporate into your research the actual acquisition of all sorts of examples of what you're talking about, where I suppose you, you get a whole bunch of these books and, and then you look at them all and then formulate some kind of... Art history. Or, well, yeah. What I try to find with them is where did these design concepts and execution methodologies arise? 
So we see the shift from gold or blind stamped covers in the Victorian era. Once the Colts Armory Press is developed, we see after that in the 1870s, 1880s, where you've got an extremely strong press that's capable of impressing cloth on board to the point where the cloth grain is compressed enough that the image can be printed in the cloth in color, in ink. Then we start seeing the use of color as part of the design of the book covers. So part of it is the evolution of technology that enables artists to pursue different design concepts. Part of it is one artist coming up with a design. Will Bradley comes up with a design in russet and silver. And uh, here, uh, we we can uh, just pull that down and, and take a look at that. And you see this gorgeous design in which he creates an almost abstract landscape that in some ways is realistic by using the cloth color as the trees, which are silhouetted by a silver skyline and a russet-colored mountain. I can show you several examples of other artists coming after who've taken that concept and evolved it, whether it's um, by adding an animal, coming through at a different angle, by putting tre- different layers of trees, by having gold light filtering through the trees, like in Frank Hazenplug's fabulous jungle book, the one with the dent mold illustrations. Oh, yeah. Now you see how that evolves from the Will Bradley concept. So uh, one of the reasons that I have to actually have these books on hand, and why I buy them, yeah. is that uh, I need to have A, very good clean copies of them, uh, which, why, uh, you know, why is, why which, which, uh, in order to study the art, uh, if, if the art is uh, defaced or worn out, you're not yeah. studying the art, you're, seeing that you're not seeing the intention of the artist. So here, you really get to see the intention of the artist, and then you get something else, and it strikes you, strikes me, anyway, yeah. that, uh, that this is related, and that this is building on a previous design by somebody else, and that establishes art history. When yeah. you see that one artist is taking influence, uh, is, yeah. is taking a concept, and then is adding to that concept and building on it, yeah. and that's interesting to me mm-hmm. because that's you know to me that's what art history is about. It shows the evolution of a style or a movement. It's interesting though, as I say, what you're doing is incorporating. Even though you're not really a book collector, you're you're enjoying the hunt. I, the, the hunt is sometimes enjoyable and sometimes frustrating, but uh, it, in order to acquire the books for study, it's necessary to uh, hunt them down mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's not just, first, there's several parts of the hunt. In one case, it's identifying what it is you're hunting for, which sometimes I have no idea what it is and just have to look at thousands or tens of thousands of books, or in this case, of book covers, just to see what strikes my eye as of interest. And that's, that's right. a building process. Or that might reinforce a, uh, some sort of theory that you put forward. That's another possibility. Yeah. And, yeah. and all of those things. And then the other is uh, then finding a copy of the book that is in good enough condition that uh, I can see how the design was intended to be. I can see maybe enough of the process by which it was done, that I can figure out how did they do it. 
I originally got started with this because I, I stamp book covers. You know, I've got a stamping press. I do hot stamping uh, of book covers. This is something I've been doing for a very long time now. And I teach that. And one of the things that got me was I saw these books of uh, that period that had covers that were scintillating, that would look differently when you hold them at one angle or another. In they, the light. Yeah. Take, just take a look at this. Watch what happens as you mm. hold it. I'm looking at Les Miserables here, published by Henry T. Coates. And it's got a beautiful, it's green with beautiful gold gilt on the cover here. But what's interesting about the gilt on the cover is that as you hold it at different angles, it changes. And that's because yeah. it's done. But that, the question is, I had to figure out how is it done. And if you take a loop and you put the loop on the cover, mm -hmm. you'll see that some of the gold is stamped directly on the cloth yeah. solidly. And some of it, there's a texture in the gold. And what happens when you stamp gold is when you engrave or etch by any process, whether you're hand engraving or photo engraving with acid or doing a mezzo tint or aqua tint, it doesn't cut a straight line down. It cuts a beveled line and the light gets reflected at an angle off the gold. That's what I had to buy these books and actually have them in my hand to learn because in order to get that effect, which is what I wanted to do on covers, I had to figure out how are they doing it. And that's when it all came to me by studying these covers with a loop. And that's how I was able to do this cover for the Art of American book covers that George Brazilla published in 2010. Yeah. And you see how it does that mm -hmm. with the changing in light. But what I did is I took that 19th century technology and used 21st century tools to get the effect. I skipped that messy century in the middle. Mm -hmm. And to get this one, I took a flat image yeah. and then went in Photoshop and added textures in Photoshop that would create different reflectivity at different angles of the gold as it hit it. Mm. Then took that Photoshop file and sent it over the internet to China where the dye was made and stamped. And that way I'm able to use the same methodology of the concept of textured gold and flat gold and do it in a way that uses computer techniques that we have today. You're learning from the past. And yeah. so I'm a book artist and a book binder and a printer and I do all these things. And yeah. so building on the past, uh, why try and figure out everything if you can actually study it? Well, if it's done, been done before and done well and it's just been forgotten, you're just bringing it to life again. And I'm bringing it using the tools and technology that we have available today instead yeah. of uh, engraving it by hand with a burin or engraving it in S. And I've, I've, I've taught engraving with S. I taught in the printmaking department of School of Visual Arts uh, 40 years ago. So once you've, once you've got the, uh, you've got the books, you've hunted them all down, you've come up with uh, some interesting theories and what, new discoveries about them, then you put forward these ideas in, in a book that you produce. Yes, then I try to make into a work of book art that's about the book art. Exactly. And you typically do a deluxe version of that and a, what? A kind of a limited. a limited version. Yeah. I can't do all the deluxe ones because there's only so many purchasers who will afford it. And it's general yeah. institutions of mm -hmm. uh, special collections librarians who want it both as book art and about book art and then the limited. And I also, I've sold quite a few of 
these versions of it, which is the CD, oh, yes. the CD-ROM version of it that takes all the contents of the deluxe edition. And the, the, with these books, American Decorated Publishers bindings, each of these came with a CD-ROM, the deluxe edition and the limited edition, yeah. because I love information as well as the handling of the book and the physical book. Uh, and I want to be able to search for search terms. I don't want to just have appendices that arrange it in three different ways by publisher, by date, uh, by author. Um, so I arrange it by author in the book. So I have you a, typically you do a, you, you, you take your collection of books and you, you write something up on each, each book, things like what? Things like who designed the cover, or what edition it is, who published it, the usual bibliographic information, and sometimes uh, is there something particular about the technique involved that would be interesting. Uh, sometimes it's about, is there something about the uh, designer that's interesting? Uh, did he kill his mistress and jump out a window uh, for his own suicide uh, after he became um, a, an expatriate indicted by Congress for uh, propagandizing for the Germans during World War One? Just for example. For example, you know. Um, <laughs> that doesn't did, happen all the time. No, but, uh, or but did, you never know. did she um, disappear mm. after uh, being engaged to a boy that his parents didn't approve of, her parents didn't approve of, and on her way home from her job designing book covers one day, came across him. He had just been run over by a carriage. She ripped off her clothing and tied up his wounds, but he died anyway. And she was heartbroken and distraught and stopped delivering her book cover designs on time and uh, then just disappeared. I have the New York Times article uh, about her. Let me show you. Where on earth would you find that? In the, by searching her name uh, online. And finding, finding bios. And so you really do drill deep, don't you? Yes, I do. And sometimes it's later on. Like, take a look at The Descendant, which you don't even see an author's name on. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Now, who did that beautiful design? That very same girl. And mm -hmm. let's see if I can find you one more here. So these books, again, typically you have a, some sort of essay that presents your findings. You then present all of the actual books themselves with all sorts of bibliographic and extra funky kind of stuff that you found about the books. All of that. All of that. And then you present different versions of that book. So now you have a collection and you've, in effect, got a sales presentation of that collection, which you then send to various institutions well, it or doesn't, other it doesn't, collectors? Well, it doesn't quite work like that, actually. No, okay. Okay. no what I do is, um, as I'm producing the books, uh, and um, as I'm studying them, I offer advanced publication discount pricing to order the edition. Yeah. And that helps provide me the income with which to do my research which means you have to pay my expenses and print the book and acquire some of them. And at the end, I print the book and I distribute it to all these, mostly librarians. There are a few individuals, but it's mostly special collections libraries that have these. And then one of them usually wants it. Once, uh, once the collection. Once, once, they get the, once they see the book, they say, can, can we get this? Yeah. 
then uh, sometimes it was two, in one case it was two or th- it was three. Three what? There were three institutions that wanted it, and uh, I didn't want to get into a bidding war with them or anything. So I had a price that I set it at, and I said, "This is the price, you have, but you have to each write me." something about what you're going to do with the collection, yeah. how will it be used, why should your institution be the one that gets it. And that's how it worked. The institution that got it in that case had a library school, had a MFA in book arts. Uh, people would study it. They were doing an online presentation of publishers' bindings. Nobody could compete with that. The right place to have this sort of finds itself. Uh, that's one of the big, and this isn't, this obviously, is nowhere near the same level, but that's one of the questions that many people who have collections of books, they think, well, what, what can I do with this collection? It seems to me that, of course, the acquisition is fun, but also acquiring all sorts of background information is, is just as fun and fascinating that they, that they could do with, with their collections. And these days, you can produce a little catalog yourself without undergoing all sorts of expense. You have to have good photographs, and uh, you have to be willing to take the time to write something interesting about it. And what you have to write, what you write about it, has to be something that somebody else hasn't written about. So you have to actually contribute to the culture by creating a way of seeing this group of artifacts that hasn't previously been uh, presented. And I think that's that's the critical thing. Otherwise, you can go to uh, Lulu or any of the uh, books on demand printing that exist and just upload your file, you upload your PDF, and you've got a book. That's the easy part. Getting the book printed is the easy part. Having something to say that people actually want to read about and might want to have the representative collection that uh, was the initial collection that, that presented that information, that's really the critical part of it. In, in that sense, making the book is easy. Uh, yeah. Book art, there's another level. Yeah, they wouldn't make a great, interesting book. Artifact. Artifact. Because they may, they may make a great, interesting book in the sense of the text and the contents, yeah. but they, they would make an acceptable, because all of these commercial book manufacturing facilities now are capable of creating reasonably acceptable quality of artifact. What about the actual photograph itself? How do you take a good photograph of a book? That is sometimes difficult, particularly if you're dealing with one of the books like I was just showing you, that has the different textures of gold that reflect lights at different angles. It's not like photographing a flat art piece. I think that's one of the critical reasons that, for me, my photographs of the books actually turn out to be more valuable in many cases than the books themselves, because I've been able to sell them. Because even though there's been a court decision ruling that a photograph of flat art that's in the public domain does not itself warrant a copyright that's independent of the original art. If it is a photograph that captures a view of a work that requires a different kind of knowledge and technique than other than putting it on a copy or making a copy, so to speak, then you've got something that you can own as a property that does not itself become public domain. So if you're photographing something that is a 
unusual thing that you have to choose a particular angle, a particular way of photographing it in order to show one aspect out of many that that artifact can then exhibit, then you've got a unique work of your own. So it helps that I was the photographer for the Hirschhorn Museum in 1970-71 and photographed 2,000 paintings and sculptures. And during that time, I had people like Otto Nelson coming in, Jeff Clemens, some of the best photographers of art in the business that I got to watch and learn the techniques from of how to like things, how to, Otto Nelson was how to look at things. But what are those techniques? Can you encapsulate them easily? No. no. I, you, have to have, you have to have a good eye. You have to know what you're looking for. You have to look at your object and move it around and move the light around until you get it just the way you want it. Once you've got that, Sometimes that's not enough, especially with some of these gold things. Mm -hmm. Then sometimes you have to go into Photoshop. Yeah. And in order to get it to look like it does in real life, because the camera can't quite capture it, you have to look at it simultaneously, be looking at it, and then enhancing different parts in Photoshop to make parts that the camera doesn't always have the same contrast ratio aspect as the human eye, mm. so, which, has, which will encompass a much greater range of light and dark. Yeah. So you have to bring the darks lighter, you have to make the lights darker. Then, in order to make it in the book so it comes good, I have to go step further. We have the problems of metamerism. And with metamerism, you've got the property that a color looks different in different lights. Not only because this light is 3200 degree Kelvin light and looks yellowish, and that's a 5000 degree Kelvin look light and looks bluish. But th that light, the sunlight, might cause a uh, reaction with its ultraviolet that fluoresces some pigments in the color. And then you find that the printing ink has a different metamerism than the ink used to stamp the cover of the mm -hmm. book, mm -hmm. or and with the gold is another problem entirely, creating that sense of reflectivity. You saw in my books how the gold looks gold. You don't even think about it. You look at my pictures and they look like gold. You don't even question that they're gold. Mm -hmm. They don't look brown. They look mm -hmm. like gold. And that's because of all the different ways that gold reflects light. Gold is, doesn't look at like one color. It looks like a wide range from very dark to almost white, almost black to almost white, within the same gold. And you just accept that's all gold. So knowing those properties, and I work with gold, you know, I work with gold leaf, I've been working with gold for 50 years, whatever. Mm. You know, I know what it looks like. So part of it is knowing what it looks like. Part of it is being able to, then, I get a proof off of my printer. I have this high-resolution printer that prints in archival inks, and it uses uh, an eight-ink ink set. You know, usually uses six of them at any one time. And then I print with that. Then I also have the ones that are printed on in... Uh, and an indigo digital offset press, which also are archival links, but then it only prints on different papers. Mm. The paper itself affects the color. And so the papers are different, the ink sets are different. So I take the prints from both of them, and I end up having to use different files to print the two different things. One is that besides that they're different sizes, I have to then, I hold them up under generally three different light sources okay. in order to... And I hold the actual physical, that's another reason I have to have the physical book and can't just go and look at the book because when I'm actually making the catalog, I have to hold the book and the printed page under the same light source and, and get it and then adjust the coloring 
of the file that the page is printed from so that I get it to match the actual book. Yeah, I guess with most people photographing their books, they just want to get something that's, uh, what, accurate? Well, well, that's what, what does accurate mean? That's the question. Especially yeah. when you get these books where I'm showing sometimes three different variant um, copies yeah. of the book that have slightly different stamping and or slightly different cloth coloring. And those slight differences have to show fairly accurately for a book that might be used by a librarian for reference to determine which edition do they have. You've got the, the photographing is is obviously very important, uh, as you say, sp particularly if your your catalog uh, is going to be used as a reference document for future purchasing. Let's say over and above interesting new observations about the collection of works, the works that you've pulled together because you've had this a specific idea. Anything else in that text? That uh, that you would typically include. I know. I know it's not about necessarily about selling this collection. It's more about talking about the the importance of it and but, making an interesting what, book. Part is about having a book that has something to say. It all depends on you know what like, like the the book I did for George Brazilla on the yeah. Art of American book covers. It ha it has to bring people up to speed. So it has examples in the front of it gives a vocabulary to the reader. It mm. mentions some of the important designer, talks a little bit about them. Yeah. It talks about the evolution of, of book cover styles, of book cover, cover methodologies. And this is to a context, trade book. Context. context. Yeah. This is, well, this is a, a, what's called a gift book format. And this is, means it's a book that is a beautiful book made for somebody to either get for themselves or give to someone as a gift who may have no knowledge of the subject and needs some introductory stuff so that as they're looking at the pictures it's not just a bunch of pretty pictures of book covers right. but they're already if they re bother to read the introduction it'll give them a context uh, for it. So you've got several audiences you've got bibliophiles and you've got librarians. And I've got general public. When George, George Brazilla, uh, who was a friend for some 40 years and he'd seen two of my exhibitions of uh, American Publishers Bindings here in this room. As I was setting up the third one, he said, I think we would like to publish a book on this. Would you be interested? And we always meant him. He always spoke in the royal we. And I said, sure. And we discussed the format and all of that kind of thing. But George said, you know, he said, I don't expect it's going to sell very many. He said, we have to print 2,000 copies or else we can't afford to print them. And that's even going overseas and all that in order to bring the price at a price point where the book would sell at all. Well, boy, were we wrong that 2,000 copies sold out three weeks. And, you know, it took six months to get another 2,000 copies printed, get back in the printing schedule, get the books printed in China, shipped. And because China was the only place where you could get this quality of printing done at that price at that year. Mm -hmm. And that edition sold out very quickly. So that was 4,000 copies. And then uh, his sons took over the business and they didn't want to spend the money on another hardcover edition. So they said, well, let's do it in paperback now. I said, I don't think that'll sell as well because people who are interested in this book will want it to be an example of that. Mm, yeah. And, the, you know, the, uh, the, the two hardcover editions have this gorgeous cover that 
illustrates that technique I was telling you about of the two-color gold. Uh, and it would turn out to be true. They're, they're still selling. They still sell the, the paperback, yeah. but it doesn't sell out because it's not a gift book. So it's not people are just buying it because it's so gorgeous. There's a story of an author that came up several times and you... You developed an interest in her. Maybe you could tell me a bit about that. Oh, about Amelia Barr. Amelia Edith Barr. Amelia E. Barr was a really interesting woman. She was born in 1839 in England and emigrated with her husband after he went bankrupt in Scotland to America. Lived a very adventurous life. And But how did I find her? I found her because I kept getting these beautiful bindings that were on books of somebody I never heard of. And at a certain point, you kind of run out of beautiful bindings. So you're looking to see, well, you know, where am I going to find another interesting binding that might inform me about something else? Because each one of these bindings has something to say to me that the artist has a new technique, a new way of seeing, a new way of drawing, a new way of expressing the metaphor of the text as using a new methodology on it. And some of the best designers were hired by Dodd Meaden Company to design the books of Amelia Barr, and they were stamped sometimes in like two colors in gold or three even. And that meant they were investing a lot of money, which meant they were selling very well. So I started researching. I said, well, maybe I can find another book or two. I'd found some six or seven, I think, books of hers at that time. And I started studying in WorldCat and you know, going online and seeing what it was. And it turned out, that she had written about 70 books after she was 50 years old and died at the age of uh, 88 in 1919. And she was a woman who was writing for women. And she writes in her autobiography. You must have been pretty pleased when you, when you found out that she had actually written an autobiography. It's an amazing autobiography because she not only wrote an autobiography, which is an action-adventure story in itself. It's an amazing life. Uh, she was widowed shortly after the Civil War, having had nine children, six of whom died. She's left with, in Galveston, Texas, as a single mom with three girls, uh, moves to New York, gets a job as a governess, uh, makes a contact who asks her to write some articles for a religious uh, newspaper. And that writing grew and grew until she had a successful novel, 1885, Jan Vetter's wife from Dodd Mead. But by 1899, uh, when the, uh, what's the name of that library project where they took the Indiana, that Midwestern library, and they uh, got all the records of everybody who borrowed a book from that library. Um, mm. uh, I, I'll have to get you the name of that. Okay. But uh, I went to that to see how popular she was. She was the 20th most popular uh, writer. Uh, that people were borrowing books from the library of. And she was written up in uh, the uh, business magazines as uh, one of America's most successful authors, where she was making over $20,000 a year, which in today's dollars would be about a half million dollars uh, from her novels. And that was uh, in 1898 or thereabouts. So she was extremely successful and then disappeared from cultural memory, likely as a result of the changing uh, attitudes uh, of people during the Roaring Twenties. What? Because they, she was a little bit too prudish? She was moral and ethical 
and had very particular ideas about behavior. She was also a writer of historical fiction. And at the time she was writing, and she's writing primarily for women, reading was the primary means of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And this was a way that a woman could learn. She wasn't, it wasn't exclusively women. Men also read her books. And in her autobiography, she talks about her readers and she has letters from her readers as well as about her publishers. It's interesting in that way too. But she is giving very well-researched history. She studied with great care the mannerisms and language and speech of uh, the people of the time she writes about. And she tries to portray an accurate vision of the society in which the people were living. And one of the things that she was doing was presenting the role of women in society. Because these are historical romance novels. You know, you might think of Jane Austen as a, a progenitor of those. Um, but during the uh, 1880s, 90s, and uh, early 1900s, uh, she was a leading, if not the leading, romantic historical fiction writer and uh, developed a big following in that genre. As the 1920s came about and women were driving motor cars and getting much more mobility and entertaining themselves in different ways and radio uh, was there, um, historical romance fiction was not, I believe, as compelling a narrative as it had been previously. So I think that also is part of it. And th the way she wrote it, she was of a particular time and had a particular style of writing. And uh, there was a drive, particularly after 1920, and she died in 1919. Her, uh, her last book was published posthumously. Her last book, she never finished writing. She was writing a novel when, uh, that, when she was 89 years old, the time of her death. So mm -hmm. there was an unfinished novel. But uh, the post-war era, the post-World War I era, saw a lot of change. Uh, World War I itself uh, made a big change. And what's interesting is a number of her books were in naval libraries on ships. I have in, uh, in the Amelia Barr catalog, I reproduce a uh, registry from the list of books in ships that includes several of her titles. So mm -hmm. they were read by sailors. I, so I'm, when I said pr she wrote primarily for women, she also wrote thousands of articles for women's magazines. Did you collect girls as well or not? Uh, I couldn't, I don't know what they are. I, the one, I, several of them uh, that I could find, but the reality of it is she did not remember, and she wrote very clearly that she had no interest in remembering. She did not keep an archive of her own work. Uh, she said she wrote thousands of poems and thousands of articles and she wrote under two assumed names. She didn't say what they were. Uh, so she just wrote that she wrote under two assumed names because she'd never been able to sell all that work under one name. Goodness. And she said it kept my pocketbook full and that was all that was required of them. Yeah. So she was extremely prolific, more than we may ever know. She didn't even have all of her copies of her own novels. When she wrote her autobiography in 1913, she wrote and they paid the, that paid the bills. Okay, so you have rescued her from oblivion to some extent. 
you put together what what do you want to call that is it it's not a catalog it's, it's a, a what is it i call it a book and no, but what, I, I, uh, what genre, what category does it fall into? Book, book history? It calls, it, 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 exactly. It's, uh, okay. uh, and, and it's a sharp book in the sense that it, it's about, I'm a member of the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading and Publishing. And in her autobiography, she writes about what she was doing at the time of each book. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. she writes sometimes about the process of writing the book. Sometimes she writes about somebody introducing her to a typewriter and teaching her how to use a typewriter and the difference between that and writing it all by hand. Some, uh, and what I have in, uh, have in this book is what's in the collection was uh, a manuscript of hers by Thyra Varick, half of which is written on a typewriter and the second half written by hand. Whether she ran out of ribbon or the typewriter broke, I don't know. But the... what, what this comes into, so the, in terms of book history, uh, that's one uh, facet, but it's called American Publishers' Bindings on the Books of Amelia E. Barr, 1882 to 1919, which is the time period of the books that I write about. And it says, collected and described by Richard Minsky. It says, with text and commentaries from the autobiography of Amelia E. Barr. So, so it's very clearly a combination of her writing about herself, putting the context of her writing as a history of authorship in this, which is of interest to me as, you know, as a Sharpie, and my interest in publishers' bindings and what the publishers saw as a cover that would reach an audience for her text, and how that evolved over time as book cover design and technology evolved. So it becomes looking at one author's works during this time period that spanned the evolution from, I would call it, post Victorian East Lake style through uh, Japanese arts and crafts, Art Nouveau, poster style. And that is interesting in terms of seeing how a reader who's been reading her books is going to, in their home, have an evolution towards yeah. modernism yeah. Uh, as the decorative art in their home that appears on book covers. So that's the context that I would put this book in. What you did, uh, and it's interesting how technology affects the looks of books. Technology has allowed you to then, you know, once you read the autobiography and you found out that she wrote 70 books, to start your adventure again to try and track down these books. All of them, because uh, the ones that I hadn't seen, I had no idea what they looked like. And any yeah. one of them could turn out to have an interesting cover. And... Yeah. Most of them did. Then it also turned out that some of them had the same cover as other books. There were series of books, and then mm. there was series of covers, and then the same books reissued in series of covers, then the same books issued in a pocket-sized edition, mm. in a series of pocket-sized editions, sometimes with the same cover and sometimes with different covers, or the same mm. cover but with evolving title pages as they started uh, making uniform title pages for all of their pocket-sized hardcover books. So it becomes very interesting in terms of publishing history because you get to see how the marketing of books evolved during this time period mm -hmm. and how sales techniques like uniform editions. Some of the uniform editions were just of her books. Some of the uniform editions involved other authors whom they thought would appeal to the same readers. And by creating a uniform edition... And then, and then there's shipping. I mean, you know, I don't have it for those books, but I got a hold of this great no, thing here, which is a, yeah. a Harper and Brothers shipping crate for 
a series of books that actually came with the books in the series yeah. in their original glassine dust jackets that came in it with what turned out to be the most interesting thing to me in terms of the economics of this. It says, warning to express agents, charges on this shipment are paid. Our customers are earnestly requested to report to us the slightest deviation from these instructions. There were shipping agents who were charging COD for the shipping on books that Harper had already paid for, so they had to put a warning on the address label to the customer not to pay additional shipping charges because there were nefarious shippers out there who were... So these are the kind of things you can get in a box. Did you get that on eBay? Probably. I have to, I have to say that, probably. That is such an incredible resource, really. I mean, you can sort of turn your nose up at it as that there's just so much crap there. And, and that's what a lot of the, the you know, antiquarian book dealers will say, is you'd never know what you're getting. But if you're looking for stuff that's, that isn't terribly popular or sought after, you can have a heyday. Even stuff that is incredibly sought after. I have gotten some amazing things on eBay, sometimes at a, at a high price from you know, these same dealers. Yeah. who are also now selling on eBay, on eBay yeah. and other times uh, just because I bid on something and nobody bids against me yeah. because it just is the way the thing was worded is obscure so it doesn't turn up in a search. Knowing how to put in your search criteria is 98% of uh, shopping on, you know, for this yeah. kind of material. And what's your advice when it comes to that? You just really have to know exactly what it is you're looking for and knowing what it is you can't stand that comes up in your searches so you don't get 1,500 results for yeah. a search when there's only one of the actual thing you want. And part of the problem is, of course, people misspell things so they don't come up. Yeah, yeah. People don't know what it is that they actually have and they call it something else yes. so it doesn't come up. I mean, there's ridiculous examples. So one of the things uh, I would say, uh, here's one of my big secret techniques I'm giving away now misspell what you're looking for. I found a lot of amazing things by searching for the misspelled version. So uh, once we've, uh, or you have done, done all this work and you put together this, this book of book history, you use that to then entice various institutions to purchase your collection so you can move on to your next project. Not exactly. I wouldn't say I entice them. I would say that... You don't have room to keep all this stuff, the unfortunately. In, the institutions don't need to be enticed. They I sell my catalogs by advanced subscription, generally. Yeah. And most institutions order them in advance. Some institutions don't subscribe in advance uh, because they're not allowed to pay until after receipt. I, do, I also offer a 10% discount for ordering in advance and shipping after publication, but not the extreme discount that people get for paying pre-publication. So some of them, some of them can't even place an order until after publication because that's the rules. And they're, they're every, you know, I deal with about a hundred libraries, and they all have different rules. But they all want the book because they want to have the book in their library because they don't all need to have the collection. For many of them, the information about the collection is really what they wanted. Some of them only buy the CD yeah. version. You know, yeah. and not all the books have CD versions. Uh, you know, some do, some don't. Some of them just want the information. And some of them want the beautiful book. 
they all have different interests because some of them are rare book collections and some of them just collect all the stuff that I produce because, you know, they collect all the stuff that I produce. They're all different, depending on the needs of their particular institution and uh, what the institutions, if they are, some of them are museums and some of them are universities and they have different needs depending if they, what their patrons are, if they are students, if they are, you know, researchers. Yeah. So that's one thing. But among those hundred or so libraries, and some of them, are, uh, like the Emilia Bar, I only produced 50 copies of. Uh, the one I'm doing now, the uh, Barbara Slade Archive, I'm only doing 50 copies of. That's because there are fewer institutions that I would identify among those who collect my work that would be specifically of interest. Yeah. With the Amelia Barr, it's those who collect women authors primarily, or mm -hmm. American fiction primarily, or publishers bindings primarily, mm -hmm. or women's studies, and women's and gender studies as it's called in many of them, uh, because she was important for what she had to say about women, because she had very firm ideas about how women were put down by men continually, up, up to the present day. Remember, she died the year before women got suffrage in America. Yeah. And uh, she was not herself a suffragette, uh, marcher, but she talks, she writes about watching the women marching, that the change will come, and it will be a change for the better. Your collection of her work went to... University of Rochester, where the Susan B. Anthony Center is, uh, among other things. And so again, a lovely fit. A, a lovely fit. And where, which has a great collection of American publishers' bodies, the Thomas yeah. Watson Ball sample book of his book covers that became the Rosetta Stone for Thomas Watson Ball. It's the only reason I was able to do the Thomas Watson Ball catalog. Cover designer. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and after Robert Metzdorf, the collector, he, when he died, certain things in his collection went to the University of Rochester. He had been a librarian there. And one of the things he had was Thomas Watson Ball's book of sample covers, the sample stamped covers of... 44 of his book covers that covered such a wide range of styles that nobody would have ever even imagined that they all came from the same designer. Mm. And he only signed two or three covers his entire life for various reasons. And sometimes signed them with a, um, a cryptographic, uh, I'd even call it, um, monogram that intentionally... For one thing, he was an art director at Harper when he was doing work for Dodd and several other uh, publishers. And Harper was one of the last... Actually, maybe the last, to allow artists to monogram the cover designs. And his was the first monogram cover design I've ever seen from Harper. And other knowledgeable people in the field of publishers binding uh, have not found an earlier monogram cover design from Harper than Thomas Watson Balls. Up until, and that was his last year at Harper. You know, there's a lot of uh, intrigue there. But based on that uh, University of Rochester's uh, single uh, scrapbook with Thomas Watson Balls, cover designs in it, I was able to identify so many others that matched his lettering style, his design style from some, from many of these different designs. A pictographic style, a style of silhouettes, a style that was floral. And that there was no way you would put them together and say this was all the same person. So that's the University of Rochester. They've got the Cary collection there too. Uh, no, they don't. Rochester Institute of Technology has the Cary collection. Within the same city? They're both in Rochester, New York. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Both very important institutions. And both of them... Interesting. Both right. of them collect the deluxe editions of my publisher's bindings catalogs. Ah. You know, that's, that, all of that's true. And, and I also, I mean, I'm, I'm close with both of them mm -hmm. uh, because I, I've done a lot of research in both of them. 
And I was also last year an artist in residence at the Carey Collection, uh, which is where I printed my Vermont Vigilance, my reification of Sinclair Lewis's fictitious pamphlet, And It Can't Happen Here. And that led to my Can't Happen Here series of bindings. And uh, I printed this there, too. I I printed this on the Albion Press that William Morris bought for the printing of the Kelmscott Chaucer. What are you you pointing at? I'm pointing at a Tyrannicus Anir, a a Greek text from Plato, which is about the tyrant. Um, (laughs) And uh, and it describes the tyrant. In Book 8 of the uh, Republic, he describes why democracies evolve or devolve, whatever you want to say, into tyrannies. And there are very specific reasons that he gives for every democracy becomes a tyranny. So since we're seeing that taking place now, and everybody's up in arms about it, and they don't see it as something that Plato wrote about 2,300 years ago, and that we have seen time and again in society. Look at the Weimar Republic transforming into uh, the Nazis. And you read the description of the tyrant here, and I have an English translation that I did. I was helped very much by actually one of my subscribers to my publisher's binding uh, catalogs, who is a uh, classics professor at Yale, uh, and helped correct both my Greek and my uh, English translation. So I did that. I just thought it was something relevant that uh, the old socialist, William Morris, would have approved of my using his press to uh, propagandize uh, with Plato. He was a big, and it's on handmade paper, uh, so it's, uh, it follows in his uh, printing tradition of printing in handmade paper, mm-hmm. a beautiful version, in this case of a Greek text, but one that goes towards uh, a, um, a forward-thinking uh, notion of society. Let's just wind up with, uh, you mentioned the project you're working on right now, perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Right now, I'm doing a catalog of the Barbara Slate archive. Uh, Barbara Slate is a cartoonist who was the creator of Ms. Liz, a feminist character she created in 1976 that uh, epitomized the liberated woman who was in conflict between the traditional values handed down by her mom and society, and the views of the liberated woman that Gloria Steinem uh, and the crew was promoting. Uh, Ms. Liz was on some two million greeting cards, was then uh, a comic strip in Cosmopolitan magazine and Self and New Woman and others, and was a uh, animated feature on the Today Show for two seasons. And that led to her uh, creating Angel Love for DC Comics, which was a radical departure for mainstream comics. You saw things about sex and drugs and the like in the alternative comics, but this comic of DC that she did took it mainstream. And from that, she moved on to doing other, mostly comics for girls and, and adults also. She did uh, Yuppies from Hell for... Marvel Comics. It was a graphic novel issued in three uh, books over three years. And she also did a lot of popular characters. Uh, she did, for Marvel, she did a whole girls line with, uh, she did some 65 Barbie comics that she wrote. She wrote and drew, drew uh, Yuppies from Hell, but with the licensed characters, she wrote them, but they were drawn by 
uh, generally the licensees, but so she did Mattel's Barbie for uh, Marvel. She did uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast and Pocahontas for Marvel. So she's done a, a lot of um, mainstream mm. uh, comics, uh, comics publishing. So her archive uh, and shows how she took these mainstream characters and made them feminist. And so she has, you know, Barbie could do anything. So she has, uh, uh, Barbie was teaching bookbinding at the Center for Book Arts, <laughs> you know, among other things. That's my kind of girl. Yeah. So, so all, you know, as well as, you know, being a scuba diver or, you know, anything else. Yeah. Cha changing the tire, flat tire on her car. Right. You know, she was for empowering girls by advancing their opportunity set of what a woman could do. Those um, got uh, Parents' Choice Awards. They were um, praised by Ms. Magazine. Barbie mm -hmm. being praised by Ms. Magazine. Who would have ever expected that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? But uh, so anyway, so this is the Barbara Slade Archive, which has got original scripts and uh, breakdowns and uh, editorial notes and the kinds of things that you find in an archive covering uh, some 40 years of, uh, of work. And have you given much thought to what the deluxe edition is going to look like? There's only one edition planned on this. The same as Amelia Barr only had one edition. I made one deluxe binding on one copy of the edition that went with the with uh, that collection, uh, and I might do something like that for this. But this is going to be a nine by twelve hardcover book. And why are you so interested in Barbara Slate? Well, I know so much about her. For one thing, uh, we've been together uh, for 30 years. And when I first met her, she wasn't uh, saving everything. And I'm such an archival-minded person. I freaked out when she was throwing away sketches, you know, because they weren't a finished thing. And uh, I said, you have to save these for your archive. This is 30 years ago. She had saved some things up till then, but a lot of stuff she'd also disposed of. Since then, she's pretty well been saving everything. Uh, scraps of this and that that show her process. So uh, she's built up a really interesting archive that shows the production process, the creative process, the economics of it. It's also got all her rejection letters. It shows what it takes, what you have to get through to keep doing things and what you have to overcome uh, in order to uh, move forward. So it's got everything from the personal to the business aspects, and it shows all the stages of making comics and graphic novels. Right, is, right up to her newest one, which I am publishing, which is we're expecting the first copy to come from the printer any day now. It just shipped from California yesterday for, you know, it's for corrections, uh, color corrections and the like, and that's the new version of You Can Do a Graphic Novel, which has been expanded by 50 pages to uh, include comic books and uh, comic strips and, and the like, to include more things about getting past the psychological things that may stop you from working and how you can break through those uh, problems hmm. and recognize them for what they are. She's been teaching now for more than 10 years. Uh, she teaches at the Cooper Union in New York, and mm -hmm. she teaches it in libraries locally and, and schools and in the region, uh, which generally means the capital region and the uh, mid-Hudson, upper-Hudson region. 
she, and she teaches at uh, book writers conventions around the country. Well, thank you for uh, bringing us up to speed on what you do. And I can't think of a more interesting way to spend your life than, than what you do. You, you read the books, you observe the books, you research the books, you collect the books, you add to the knowledge about books, you sell books in a way. I have to sell them so I can yeah. afford to buy more. And you actually create beautiful books. Thank you. What a life. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you. I've been speaking with Richard Minsky, who was the is the founder of the Center for Book Arts in New York and a book artist, a book scholar. Anything else you'd like to add to that? Gardener. Gardener, yeah. Let's go and check out your beautiful garden.